Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Bealey and joining me in the studio today are Peter Day, partner at Killick & Co. and Ewan Lovett-Turner, investment companies analyst at Numis. So today we're going to be looking at the reader portfolio, about the sustainability of income from investment trusts and returning again to the passive versus active debate in the US with some help from Tony Best Invest's latest report into underperforming funds. So firstly, we're going to turn to the portfolio clinic. Now, this week, we're talking about a reader who's 44 years old, and he's been investing for four years. Now, his goal is to end up with a portfolio of 250000 by the age of 55. And he wants it to generate around 10000 a year through dividend and capital growth. So his portfolio is a relatively small collection of equities, and he doesn't have any funds or trusts in there. Now, Peter, you've had a look at this portfolio. Firstly, how realistic are his aims in terms of that amount that he wants to end up with and that income? I think overall it is realistic, his expectations. Um, having run the numbers on it and looking at how much he's looking to invest over the, the, the period until his retirement, I think it could be achieved. There are some points that I'll come on to as to what may make sure that he achieves it, but I think overall his aims are realistic. Uh, what he would need to achieve in terms of returns to make good on those objectives is a, a compound return of about 4.7% a year. So over the course of the next 11 years, his assets would need to grow each year by 4.7%. So the question of how realistic that is, I suppose it's difficult to predict uh, into the future. We'll we'll always hear that in the financial world. Uh, But what we can perhaps do is have a look back at the the past, look at the history. And if we go back over the the longest data that we've got in the UK, then equities, the the stock market, has traditionally provided us a a long-term return of about 5.1% over and above inflation over an extended period. So that, that's data going back over 100 years put together by the, the, the likes of the Barclays Equity Guild study. So on a, a basic sense, I think it is realistic. Um, his suggestion is that he hopes to draw an income of approximately £10,000 a year from the capital sum if he should be able to build it to £250,000. So what we're looking at there is an income yield of about 4%. Again, I, I would say that's that's realistic in the context of what he's he's looking to achieve. I mean, how does that compare to what the FTSE yielding at the moment because that does sound quite high or relatively high considering how low yields are on most things now. You're absolutely right. So if you looked at just the broad-based FTSE, then the yield is coming in at closer to 3.3% at the moment. So he would be looking at a a strategy, a higher income strategy than the average, albeit I think it is achievable given some of the options that are available um, out there now. And certainly further down the line as he moves into income production mode rather than capital growth, he may open himself up to some of the other higher income producing asset classes to get him over the line. Now, maybe talking a bit about the risk that he'll need to take or is taking. He doesn't hold funds and he has all stocks divided between very large FTSE stocks, all those kind of well-known names, and some speculative small cap companies. Now, you highlighted that small cap theme in his portfolio and and said you you weren't sure whether that was a good idea for private investors. Can you explain a bit more about that and and why you think that's a tricky area? Sure. So I think I should say in the first instance, I'm a big fan of investing in small cap stocks. I think, again, looking back over the longer term, um, the returns achieved from small 
small cap stocks um, do outperform those of the, their larger cap peers. The average returns are possibly 2 to 3% higher than the, the large cap peers. But the variance of performance is that much greater. So I think one could say that the risk is potentially higher investing in those areas. And where I'm always slightly nervous, um, he makes the point that he is working, doing his own um, job. He, he's not an experienced investor. And I think, therefore, that uh, there are a number of pitfalls of owning only a small number of smaller companies. Unfortunately, many of them do run into difficulties. And whilst the good ones can go on and achieve great returns, some of the smaller ones do fail. So by only having a portfolio of a limited number, I think he's exposing himself to higher than necessary risk. Mm, And I mean, he's one of those investors, which I think a lot of people are, who likes that idea of getting into a company, you know, when it's very young and and kind of, you know, picking a winner, I guess. Is there a way of investing in small caps or, or startups which is maybe a bit safer or a more diversified route to doing it? Absolutely. So there are those who uh, can no doubt go on and pick all the best stars of the future. <laughs> but I think being realistic, um, that is very challenging. And certainly you would have to do an enormous amount of due diligence to achieve those sorts of uh, returns. However, th- there are many other approaches taking the view that you might want to have a more diversified approach through an investment trust or through a unit trust or or potentially a a low-cost tracker fund for the smaller company sector can all offer you exposure to the high growth within that sector, but also through a diversified manner, which is a slightly lower risk. And that's something that I would encourage someone in in this position. He has set goals of what he wants to achieve. And I think the approach that he's taking on at the moment, he's certainly taken on a high risk approach and he may not deliver on those objectives. Yeah, I mean, one of the kind of high risk elements is that he has very large chunks of his portfolio in, in one particular stock. So for example, 24% in Rolls-Royce, a company that I think a lot of people are feeling quite negative about and its share price has really tanked recently. What do you think of that weighting and is there a maximum weight you would recommend for any one stock? For me, that is a little bit too high. Um, I think he makes the point that some US value investment houses are uh, picking up their stake in it. But equally, some big investors like Neil Woodford has completely sold out of it, having been a long term fan of Rolls Royce and uh, been invested in that stock for over 10 years. He's taken the view that there are real problems that lie ahead. The company is structurally challenged and therefore it's not appropriate to keep his investment in there. Going back to your initial point about the the weighting he has in there, it's a, a quarter of his asset in one stock, I would suggest is pretty high and therefore his likelihood of achieving his overall objectives are going to stem largely from the performance or lack of performance at Rolls-Royce. So I think if we look back at the theory and modern portfolio theory, it would suggest that you need a minimum of 15 to 20 stocks in a portfolio. So I suppose that brings you down to the 5, 6, 7% weighting in each individual stock and the, the suggestion is that you continue to benefit from diversification up to a certain level, but thereafter, uh, the, the benefits associated with diversification may wane. So 24%, I'd suggest, is a, a little bit too much. For me, uh, I'd be aiming closer to the 5% mark, accepting that if something's gone on to do very well, it may um, go up to maybe a, a 10% weighting. Thereafter, I think for someone in his position, you probably want to look at maybe trimming holdings. Yeah, and I just wanted to talk briefly about his strategy, because his I guess affection for Rolls-Royce is a part of his kind of approach, which is that he likes to pick stocks which have fallen a long way in share price terms and are very much out of favour with investors. And he says that he's benefited from this in the past, things like Lloyd's, but has also been burnt by that strategy. 
Now, our, our economist who also looked at this portfolio really was not keen on his approach and said, you know, he's got very high exposure to risky growth stocks, which could very easily go wrong and, and kind of keep falling out of favour rather than recovering. What do you think in terms of investors taking these strategies? Is is it misguided to do that? Or is it a case of just balancing these very high conviction plays with some safer assets around the side? Yeah, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think there is a time that all strategies work, whether that's catching a stock that's out of favour or, or running momentum stocks. But I think it is a, an element of balance that you need within a portfolio. And without wishing to gang up on your reader, I, I would certainly go along with uh, your economist, Chris Tillow's uh, comments. I think you'll be aware there's a number of old adages about running your winners and cutting your losers and letting the trend be your friend and uh, how dangerous it is to catch falling knives. And I think these do have some basis to them, um, that, that actually when companies are performing poorly and their share price is falling, they can continue to go on to perform poorly for a longer period of time. In the recent past, we can look back at um, examples of the banking sector through the crisis that many people tried to call the bottom early uh, and were only disappointed. More recently in the, the, the large cap space stocks as, such as Tesco's, it, it's looked as though surely Tesco's can't go wrong, but actually their, their troubles have gone bad uh, to worse. And it takes a very long time for these sorts of things to to heal. And so I I would agree that um, it's a risky strategy to have too much in those areas of just fallen angels, hoping that you're going to to pick the bottom as as satisfying as it can be if and when you do catch one right at the bottom. Mm. Okay. And so he did mention that um, he wants to de-risk a bit as he does approach retirement. So what would be some ways of de-risking, of diversifying this particular portfolio, reducing that concentration a bit? Yeah, so I think um, we've talked about Rolls-Royce representing a very large part of his portfolio. I would go further and to say that he still has a fairly limited number of holdings in his portfolio. And therefore, it may be um, worth considering investing in trusts or some form of collective instruments so that he's diversifying his stock-specific risk. As he approaches retirement and he wants to further reduce his dependence potentially on equity markets, and at the moment he is largely just focused on one asset class, he may want to introduce some other assets asset classes whose performance is not entirely correlated to those of the equity markets. By that I mean corporate bonds, government gilts, property, absolute return funds, hedge funds, whose performance will tend to be determined by other factors um, than the stock market and therefore he gives them a more balanced approach and, and therefore as he approaches retirement he will be reducing his risk. Okay, great. Thanks. So for some more conclusions on that portfolio, take a look at this week's magazine. And next, we're moving on to investment trusts and having a look at how sustainable the income they pay out is. Now, I've had a look at this in this week's magazine because throughout last year and this year too, we've had some big headlines related to dividend cuts across the FTSE and major companies, in fact, all over the world. So we've had Glencore, Anglo-American, Morrisons, a lot of whom slashed their dividends completely, particularly in the mining sector, and others who have just reduced them a lot. Now, funds and trusts are reliant on this income to some extent. So this does look like a bit of concern. And when it comes to investment trusts, it's worth having a look at how well protected your dividends are. So we combine that with the fact that investment trusts are on very high yields at the moment. And that's partly due to falling share prices and often is a bit of a warning sign just in terms of dividend cuts. So Ewan, why are we seeing yields rise across the investment trust sector? And what does that mean? 
Well, you've seen a, a degree of the, the yields rising uh, based on those those weak markets. Uh, yet the dividends being based on on uh, the, the previous uh, previous year. So, uh, as a factor of the share prices going down, your dividend yield uh, rises. But uh, say for UK equity income funds, they're, they're around three point seven percent at the moment, and that's an attractive level. But um, it, it, it's uh, not not sort of uh, levels that might uh, indicate too high a risk. But if you look at more specialist sectors such as uh, mining, mm. uh, where you mentioned those cuts have been coming through, you've got historic yields of, of up near 12%, which would uh, sort of ring some alarm bells that uh, whether these are sustainable uh, going forward. Because, I mean, the high yield is obviously just showing that share prices come right down, but you're looking at historic dividend payments. So the warning sign there is can this trust keep paying out this income? Yeah, certainly. And, and for that, we'll have to look at the, the, the outlook for dividends going forward in the next year. Recent companies that have, that have reported uh, their results, um, and this is back back to September, have actually been delivering reasonable earnings growth, uh, say Troy income growth or F- uh, Finsbury uh, growth in income, delivering around 7% earnings growth. Okay, um, so we're not seeing declining earnings across sectors or I mean are there sectors where we definitely are seeing declining earnings well again I trust that that's a slightly lagging measure and and Mm -hmm. as you see the dividends in the underlying market and the underlying holdings uh, decrease this is when uh, you're going to have to look more closely on, on the cover in the investment trust space. Okay, so Peter, we know that trusts have some benefits over open-ended funds in terms of protecting investors' dividends and their income. Can you just explain very generally how that works before we get into a bit more of the nitty-gritty? Certainly. So when we're talking about open-ended, we're we're talking about OICs and unit trusts here. Um, the, The rule of thumb is that they have to distribute all of the income that they receive by the end of each financial year. With trusts, investment trusts, again, the regulation is slightly different there. I mean, it does depend a little bit on their structure. But again, the rule of thumb would be that they don't necessarily have to distribute all of their income. They can hold some back. They can reserve some um, past income or past capital to then distribute it further down the line. And so one of the benefits can be is that they can smooth out income payments over a period of time in that if they do have a slightly lacklustre year where they haven't received as much income, some funds may have accumulated income in the past that they can then pass on uh, and pay out. So for investors who are looking at a a long-term rising income stream, they may find it uh, that they get more comfort from the trust space rather than the open-ended space. Okay, great. So Ewan, when we are trying to work out then how well protected trusts are or your dividends in a trust are, what are the things you need to look at? What are the metrics? So there's a couple of key metrics uh, that I'd look into, one being uh, revenue reserves, which gives you an idea of, of, of how much uh, of a safety net there is to, to protect uh, to protect the dividend, and the second being uh, dividend cover. Um, the, starting with the, the dividend cover, it gives an indication of to what degree the current year earnings cover that dividend. So how much uh, larger uh, potentially the the sum of all the dividends from the underlying portfolio, less the costs that are charged to the revenue account, how much bigger that is compared to the dividend it's paying out. So typically there you're looking for a number above uh, one times. Um, so marginally above one is, is, a, is a nice number. Uh, that means that it's fully covering its dividend and it's got a small amount that it's able to to squirrel away in those revenue reserves, which can be used in a rainy day. 
So moving on to the revenue reserves, which is is that uh, store for, for for tougher times, the investment trust can retain uh, up to fifteen percent of each year's income and put them in in the revenue reserves. And uh, I like to look at that as a proportion of the the year's dividend. So that gives you an idea of of to what degree you could see the the, the portfolio earnings drop and uh, still be supported by the war chest of the revenue reserves. So that you you know is published in the the, the accounts, and then you you have to uh, deduct the uh, post year end dividend, which uh, the the wise people in the the accounting board don't consider in that financial year. And then express that as a, the a percentage of the year's dividend. Yeah, I mean, we should say at this point that this feature I <laughs> gave me some real headaches because, in fact, finding these numbers, these metrics, is not easy. Um, and as you just said, in a lot of places that you get this data, they won't consider um, all of the dividends paid out in the financial year. Or some will show you kind of cover but it'll just be showing you cover for those three dividends paid and not the final dividend, which might have been declared but not paid. So it's it, it can be quite difficult to get this data, can't it? Yeah, it can. And uh, yes, yeah, so I've probably spent a little bit too much quality time <laughs> with, with the reporting accounts to, to, to sort of dig these numbers out for, for a good number of uh, equity income focused, uh, focused trust. Mm. But uh, it, it does prove that if, if you're, you're able to run the numbers or, or you'll read it in, in the column, that uh, equity income, uh, UK equity income trusts have typically are at, uh, over half a year's dividend in their, their revenue reserves, about 0.6 of a year's dividend. Which, is that like the good kind of number? Is that the kind of number you think is ideal? Or? I, I think that gives a, a, a good safety net. So notionally, you could have nearly half of your year's income uh, disappear the next year and you would be able to fund it from, from revenue reserves. I think that's a, an unlikely um, scenario. In, in 2008, we saw market dividends after the global financial crisis drop by about 20%. You could see a significant drop in in the revenue uh, from the underlying dividends, but the investment companies would have the ability to smooth that over the next couple of years and pay out from their revenue reserves. Okay, so basically we've got two places to look in terms of income sustainability, earnings cover, dividend cover and revenue reserves. So let's just take a look at a few examples. I should say that this feature has, I think it's 21 high-yielding trusts listed, which we analysed. So definitely worth taking a look to see if one of your favourite trusts is in there. But so two examples of the least protective when it comes to dividend cover, and this is covered by earnings, are Murray International and Merchants Trust. So both of those have less than one times cover. So Ewan, what's happening with those trusts and are either a concern? So so Murray International may be uh, a name very familiar and popular with uh, a lot of retail investors. Um, it offers a, a 6% uh, dividend yield. And uh, the the last report on accounts was was back in December 2014, at which point it was it was 0.9 times covered, uh, so it it wasn't fully covering its dividend uh, from those uh, from those earnings from that year, and so that could be a cause cons- concern. If you look at the underlying factors behind that, that's a trust that's had a heavy emerging market uh, sort of Latin America and, and Asian bias. And it's that Latin America bit that's been really hurting, hasn't it? Yes, and, and particularly for a, for an income investors, the, the currency moves on that can have a big effect in the in the short term. Although, um, sort of Bruce Stout, the manager, is expecting that 
over over longer terms would, would provide him with a, a, a more positive headwind. So that is potentially a cause for concern. But uh, looking at our, our, our safety net, our revenue reserves, it's got over half a year's dividend at 0.57 years worth of dividend and revenue reserves. So it has the ability, even if its earnings don't recover, to support that dividend and that dividend growth for, for some time. And on the positive note, uh, at the June half year, earnings were up 20% on the previous year. So looking a bit rosier, but uh, we'll be waiting with interest for, for this year's uh, results. And analysts, whenever we look at this, in fact, analysts are very positive about Bruce Stout and his management and his style. And even when it, it, I think it dropped to a discount for the first time in five years last year. And when we spoke to analysts and, and commentators, everyone was very still very kind of positive, very bullish on his ability to um, return to performance. So just in terms of revenue reserves and looking at some of those with very low reserves in relation to dividends, BlackRock World Mining is one of them. And again, a trust that's really been suffering, I guess, for obvious reasons for the past two years. It also took a, a big hit, apart from the general commodities route, in the Marampa mine, which I had to write down an investment in. So the trust has been suffering and it does also look like it doesn't have much in the way of cover by reserves. Ewan, do you think that is a concern or do you think there are mitigating factors? Well, certainly we uh, mentioned the 12% uh, yield, which is is, is slightly eye-watering at the moment, <laughs> and that should raise some alarm bells. And, and what I would sort of stress with this one particularly is, is investors looking for sustainable income need to look at the risk-return profile of the underlying assets as well. And, and so a commodity uh, mining-focused company, um, you're going to get a, a, a relatively high level of volatility in, in your underlying asset value as as well as potentially your income uh, compared to a, a traditional sort of UK equity income manager. And at 12%, uh, you've seen that rise to such a degree because uh, last year the, the, the share price and asset value of, of Blackwater Royal Mining fell by about 35%. And the board has uh, made a, a very positive statement about this year's dividend and it has been willing to, to dip into uh, its revenue reserves uh, for this year and, and maintain that dividend. So, so you have some comfort for, for this year. But the next year is looking a little more questionable, isn't re- it? <laughs> regarding the future, I think it's made a, a fairly sensible statement that that will depend on being able to return to that full level of cover in the medium term. And so it won't have a complete mismatch between the dividend that the trust is paying out and the income from the underlying. And there you have seen the, the, the cuts in Glencore, uh, which was a holding, and um, you also in the sector Anglo-American. Uh, but um, the, the two biggest holdings in the trust are, are BHP Billiton and Rio Tinto. And so really the future of that dividend is, is quite dependent on the, on the payouts yeah. uh, there. I mean, we in in the future as well, we do take a look at some of the, the FTSE companies with the highest yields and those with kind of big question marks over their future dividends, BHP and Rio Tinto, right up there in terms of people asking questions about whether they will be able to keep paying out dividends. Peter, is this something you think about when you're looking at investment trusts and the ones you like? Absolutely. I think talking about the bulk of the investors in investment trusts are private investors. And if we look forward to um, the reader at the outset who's looking to derive a certain income when he hit retirement, it's clearly very important to his lifestyle and his living that the investments he's made do go on to achieve those um, incomes that he needs, the 4% that we talk 
talked about at the outset. So we will focus very closely on the, the trust's ability to maintain and hopefully continue to grow those dividends as well so that his income keeps pace with inflation and his ever-increasing costs that he'll be facing. Okay, so an important thing to look at and take a look at the feature for some more data crunching on that. Now, finally, we're going to have a look at the US active versus passive debate again. Because this week we've had a look at Tilney Best Invest's latest report into underperforming funds. And one thing which does really stand out is US fund managers' continued failure to outperform their benchmark. Now, this is something people have been saying for a while, and it's very clear from these results that it continues. So the 10 US funds in the report make up 18% of the total universe of underperforming funds. So it accounts for a very big ratio of the total. I took a look at the best performing passive funds, which are obviously much cheaper than their active counterparts, and all of the best performing and they track uh, a variety of indices, so you would have had to have chosen the right index, but all of them outperform the worst performing US actives by miles. I mean, Peter, what is it about the US market which which makes it hard for active managers, do you think? It's a very good question. It seems on the surface, is well, why can't they beat the index? But it, it does and continues to prove to be one of the hardest indices to outperform. And so uh, the reasons for that, I think, come down to, well, they're probably threefold in my mind. Firstly, it's a very broad index in the US. So whereas in the UK, we have some big sectors that have traditionally made up big parts of the index. So looking back pre-credit crunch, the banking sector made up about a third of the FTSE 100. When the credit crunch hit, if you avoided banks, then you would probably outperform the index. More recently, um, you'll possibly be aware that the whole commodity space, oil and gas and mining sectors, again, they were making up um, well in excess of 20% of the FTSE 100 index. And so when they've collapsed over the course of the last year or two, by avoiding those specific sectors, then you may have had a good chance of um, outperforming the index. If we look at the S&P, the biggest stock would only represent about 2% of the overall uh, Standard Poor's index in the States. And no specific index makes up such a large part of it. So it's a very broadly spread index, and it's therefore less easy to make big sectoral calls and allow yourself to outperform the market as a whole. So it comes down to, to pure stock picking. Then when we look at the the stock picking side of things, again, it's probably the most efficient market in the world, just in terms of the pure number of analysts who are focusing on each individual stock, it will be the highest in the world. And so what that translates to is it's quite difficult to get an edge over the actual market that you could have unearthed something that the rest of the market hasn't to give you that edge to allow you to outperform um, the market. And then thirdly, it's the pure amount of money in the in the market that again tends to make it more efficient so when you add all those things together it is a very challenging market to, to outperform and history has proven that most of the active managers do struggle in that space yeah i mean it, i think it'll be interesting won't it going forward with a rate rise to see to see what happens there because the macro environment for, for the us has changed now or is changing so whether a different strategy starts to work you know when the kind of tide that lifts all boats that is QE is pulled out Uh, but we will have to wait and see for that Um, we do highlight in this piece two pedigree uh, according to Sony Best of Us active funds which have outperformed so it's not all bad for active managers in the US and worth taking a look at who those are but that's all we've got time for this week so it just remains for me to thank my guests Ewan Lovett Turner and Peter Day and say thanks for listening
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 